I had just grown up with this whole idea that my identity was just going to be formed in this marriage. And when that came apart, I just felt like, well, who am I? And I guess that was how my kind of, I guess you could say, journey of sexual empowerment kind of began from there. I would not expect anyone to go and learn about having a healthy romantic relationship from watching The Notebook and then expecting your boyfriend or husband to be like Ryan Gosling in The Notebook. You know, it's not going to happen. That man doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. And porn is a fantasy too. But unfortunately, because we don't have any other good learning tools about sex, that's where men are going to learn about female sexual pleasure. And so we don't have that education around it. And that's how the orgasm gap is able to, you know, I I think it's something like 91% of uh, the time men can orgasm from sex. And I think for women, it's like 39% of the time. When I was able to speak up for myself in the bedroom, speaking up for myself in the boardroom was easy. And I was able to speak up for myself in all areas of my life. Hello and welcome to another episode of Women's Health Uninterrupted, where we chat to kick-ass women doing amazing things in the health and wellness space. I'm Lisa Gebilagen, Deputy Editor of Women's Health Australia. Today's guest is Nadia Bockerty. She's a sex-positive journalist, media commentator and mental health advocate with absolutely no concept of TMI. That's not me being judgy, those are her own words. She frequently appears on national and global TV. She's a regular guest host on Triple M Radio and contributes columns to HuffPost, The Washington Post and The Sun. So you can expect this chat to not only be uninterrupted, but also uncensored as we talk about closing the orgasm gap between men and women. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I am so excited for this chat. So the first time I saw you speak was at the launch of a new Womanizer toy. Yes, it was. The Womanizer (laughs) duo. So for those of you listening who have no idea what we're talking about, picture a really sleek looking rabbit, but instead of bunny ears, it uses air pressure for stimulation. Kind of like... (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I like to describe it as it's sort of like, it's like really good oral sex. That's what it feels like. Mm, yep, that's the one. Anyway, I loved what you were saying on the day that you were very much advocating for women to take ownership of their own pleasure. Something that meant a lot to you after you and to quote you, disembarked from an emotionally taxing seven-year marital cruise. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your marriage? Yeah, I mean, I think I did what so many women do in their 20s and had, well, they've got a whole term for it now. They're saying it's the starter marriage. I guess this is like a sign of like our our generation or our culture. But um, yeah, I was, I got married in my 20s. You know, I think it's just the way that we've been sort of I guess, raised as women is that, you know, the thing that you do is you grow up, you meet a boy, you fall in love, you get married, you have a family and you settle down. And so I did all of that. And then I realized, well, not the family part, I'm child free, but um, I did the marriage part. And I realized that actually it wasn't for me. And then I felt kind of trapped by it. Um, And I tried really hard for a long time to make it work and to fit myself into the mold of what I thought I needed to be as a wife, but it just never really fit me. And um, yeah, it was it was after about seven years that things sort of really fell apart. And um, the hardest thing for me was telling my mum, because my mum is very old fashioned, like old school conservative. So she yeah. was the one I was most afraid to tell. And um, 
it was really interesting because she was like, you know what, like I obviously have my my thoughts on this, but at the end of the day, this is your life and you are still so young and you have so much life ahead of you. There is no point continuing on living a life that's making you and or someone else miserable. How old were you when you got married? Um, I was 25 when we got engaged and we had like a six-month engagement and then we were married. It was really whirlwind, super That's fast. Quick, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned too you had these preconceived notions of what it meant to be a married woman. Mm. Can you paint a picture of what that was? Yeah, I think it's just that idea that women have to be – I guess that we we need a man to be complete. It felt like performing a kind of role. I guess no one ever really – told me that I had to do that. I just felt like I did. I had to, you know, take on that sort of role of, you know, looking after my husband and, you know, just being happy with sort of regular coupled life. And it just wasn't for me. And I don't, didn't enjoy the way that my identity kind of got lost in the relationship as well. And I think just the finality of it, like the fact that it's like, you know, till death do us part. I think my issue with marriage now, and obviously, I mean, you can call me cynical because I've, you know, I've marriage didn't work for me. But I guess my issue with marriage now looking at it is that, you know, when marriage first came about historically and people said till death do us part, well, people were only living till they're like 40 years old. So that wasn't really <laughs> too tough. Now it's like, my God, when are you going to die? <laughs> um, so, uh, And with the magazine too, we are helping people live longer than ever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, so yeah, I, I really struggled with that. And um, I, I think it was, it was actually telling my mum that was kind of my breakthrough moment because it was the fact that she was so accepting of it in spite of her own values around it, that sort of gave me the permission to just, I guess, go out and start again. And it sounds so- like something from like a cheesy, like eat, pray, love movie or something, but it was like I had to like build myself again from the ground up because I had just grown up with this whole idea that my identity was just going to be formed in this marriage. And when that came apart, I just felt like, well, who am I? Like I had defined myself as as this role as a wife for so long and it was just discovering who I was and what I wanted. And I guess that was how my kind of, I guess you could say, journey of sexual empowerment Mm -hmm. kind of began from there. Because the topic of this conversation is about closing the orgasm gap. Can you tell me what kind of role you felt you had to play as a married woman when it came to sex? Um, I would definitely describe it as performative. And I think that's the way that a lot of women, certainly women that I talk to, see it. And I think it's really the way that we've been raised from young girls to see our role in sex. You know, if if you think about your school sexual education, we do learn about male pleasure. We learn about, um, you know, we all remember having that class learning about boys having erections and wet dreams and that sort of stuff. I mean, we didn't learn about the clitoris. We didn't learn about female sexual pleasure. What we learned about was the horror of unwanted pregnancy and menstruation and all of this doom <laughs> and gloom for girls. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I talk to so many women and I, I have a column um that's called Ask Nadia for the website I run, she said.com. And uh, every week um, someone will write in and, and ask me a question and someone, a, a woman had asked, you know, I think my boyfriend is a really selfish lover. Like he doesn't do anything to please me. Like do I just need to accept this or is this something I can do? And I said, well, 
look, I don't know your boyfriend. He may very well be selfish. But the more likely answer is that he just doesn't know what the hell he's doing. And he's just trying to guess his way through it, albeit not very well. I said, but you have to remember, men have not been taught about female sexual pleasure. They haven't been taught about the role of the clitoris, the G-spot, all of these things. Where, Where can they learn it from? The only place men have to go to learn this is porn. Yeah. And I'm not anti-porn. I actually love a good porn sesh myself, but it's not a great place to learn. I would not expect anyone to go and learn about having a healthy romantic relationship from watching The Notebook and then expecting your boyfriend or husband to be like Ryan Gosling in The Notebook. You know, it's not (laughs) going to happen. That man doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. And porn is a fantasy too. But unfortunately, because we don't have any other good learning tools about sex, that's where men are going to learn about female sexual pleasure. And in porn, pretty much a woman gets penetrated and has an instantaneous screen orgasm. (laughs) So, um, you know, that's really where the orgasm gap begins. It actually begins from the fact that we don't even acknowledge female sexual pleasure from a young age. And, you know, there are studies that show like 30% of women when they're having sex are either uncomfortable or in pain. And you think, well, why would someone do something that was hurting them? Why would they voluntarily do that? Because they don't know what it's supposed to feel like in a healthy or good way. And so we don't have that education around it. And that's how the orgasm gap is able to, you know, I I think it's something like 91% of uh, the time men can orgasm from sex. And I think for women, it's like 39% of the time. It's it's pretty. It's pretty pretty, huge. Yeah, pretty sad. I like to say that the real place that inequality begins is in the bedroom. And did you feel that inequality when you were married? I, 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 that's a tough one to say because, you know, I, I have so much respect for my ex and, um, I still have so much love for him. And I think he was a really amazing partner to me. But I guess, yeah, I did feel it. I think it was something that, um, I don't necessarily feel like he put on me. I feel like I almost put on myself because I never felt that I had a place to ask him for what I wanted. Yeah. And that thing, that I think is key communication. Huge. It's huge. And that's what I say to people who, you know, they go onto YouTube and watch my sex advice videos and they write to me and they say, give me, you know, advice on how to do this and how to do that in the bedroom and what's this technique and what's that technique. And I always say, you can have all the techniques in the world. And, you know, I I love sharing all of this information, but if you don't have communication, all of this stuff is going to mean nothing. The number one thing that you need to do to improve your sex life is to ask your partner what are you into? If you're not asking that, you're just fumbling around in the dark. Exactly. And then the reciprocal, letting them know what you're into, you know. Exactly. And I think the problem for women in particular is uh, so many women will say, well, I, I don't know what I'm into because they've never actually given themselves a chance to explore it. It almost doesn't feel like an option for them that, wait, I can like have pleasure that's just selfishly for me and that's okay. You know, women have been taught to be people pleasers and caregivers and providers, you know, so it's it's a very um, uncomfortable thing, I think, for a lot of women to go, I can do this thing that's just for me. And this feels like the perfect way to segue into your seven-night, one-night stand. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Um, so I, I wrote an article um, – It was around the time that I was sort of coming out of my marriage and um, that was when I really started getting into writing about sex because I sort of discovered the world of like Tinder and um, 
all of the dating apps, which hadn't really been a massive thing before I got married. So that was all very exciting to me. And um, I went a little sort of crazy on all the dating <laughs> apps. And I I sort of, and again, this is going to sound like something out of like a cheesy movie, but I sort of like, I realized that I could discover myself and my sexuality and what I wanted um, and who I was through the world, I guess, of casual sex. And for me, you know, everyone has a very different experience, but for me, it was quite a cathartic kind of healing experience. And I think it's because when you're having a one night stand, you know, you're never going to see that person again. So with my husband, who I loved and cared about so much, I was always afraid to, you know, ask for certain things or, you know, what will he think of me? Or I don't want to hurt his feelings if I tell him he's not doing something right. With a casual sexual partner who I'm never going to see again the next day, I, I just didn't care. So there was a lot of freedom in that knowledge. So, um, yeah, I wrote about – I wrote a column which was called What I Learned from Having Seven One-Night Stands in Seven <laughs> Days. And, um, yeah, it um, it was just about the fact of, of how I grew more than anything actually emotionally from my sexual experiences. I think the most interesting thing for me to come out of that column, I'm not sure if you – saw this online, but it was maybe, um, it was sometime earlier this year. So the, I, the column's actually a couple of years old now. Um, and, uh, a UK tabloid, they must've been having a slow news day because they'd gone ferreting through my stuff and they dug out this column and written a story about it. And then when I woke up in the morning, like 10 UK tabloids had written a story about it. Like I was like, how this is just proving my point of why we need this discussion about female sexual empowerment. Because how is a woman having a bunch of sex news? I just don't even know. And especially because it's like you said, it was from a few years ago. Yeah. And it was old as well. <laughs> but But the more interesting thing to come out of it was just the immense slut shaming that came out of it. Really? I was getting it from all angles and it was just it's I'm used to getting online hate and you know my I've had my whole life online for years and years. So I'm used to it. I've heard everything you can hear, but this was like the volume of it. There was so much of it and it really reinforced to me um why I'm doing this and how how much misunderstanding there still is about female sexuality. So, yeah, that was a really interesting thing to come out of it. And I think I guess the silver lining to that column was that actually there were and, – and again, this reinforces why I do what I do – there were a number of women who reached out to me privately and said, thank you for writing that column. I've I've found you because that column went viral and I feel like you were telling my story, you know, I came out of a marriage recently, I went through a similar thing with casual sex, and I really felt like you were telling that story could have been about me. And I think that was the silver lining of it. And I think that's the thing that people don't realize. People think I'm this unique kind of like, I don't know, like I'm some sort of a nymphomaniac. And I'm like, if only people understood just the sexual experiences that I share online they're just so universal. Just the amount of women that reach out to me constantly and say that story could have been about me. Um, but no one wants to talk about it for this very reason because of all of the the hate and the slut shaming that comes with it. It just surprises me that that much still goes on now because when I read your blogs, I feel like I am at the pub with my girlfriends and we're just catching up over drinks and I'm hearing about their weekend exploits. 
and sharing mine. That's what it feels like. Yeah. And and that's so nice to hear because that's exactly what I want it to feel like. Um, and it is the way that close groups of girlfriends chat among each other. Yeah. But I think men aren't so much aware of it. Um, and I think like I, I've got girlfriends who've um, you know, their sexual number is way, way, way many times higher than mine. Mine looks tiny in comparison. <laughs> but none of their previous partners would have had a clue of that because they felt that it would somehow either taint the way their partner saw them, that it might jeopardize the relationship. Women still feel and, – and I have so many men come to me and say like, this is the thing about this dichotomy between hatred and arousal that men have toward me because I have a lot of men say, oh, like I just, you're just so like sexual and horny. Like I wish all women could be like you. And I'm like, but I'm just a normal woman. Like all women are like this. It's just that all women aren't talking about this because of the slut shaming that goes on. So women repress their sexuality. Um, and I think a lot of women do it to the point that they convince themselves that they're not sexual because they are so repressed mm. because of that what we've been taught that if you if you are sexual that says something about your character as a woman it's very different to say how i have experienced say 20s and 30s probably because i spent a lot of my 20s working for clear magazine when it was open back in the day and that was very much about sex and having that sexual empowerment and so a lot of people I um, went through my 20s with were very open about that and very open about the fact that they will go out and sometimes all they're looking for is a fuck. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And that's the reason they're going out. And what I found interesting about your talk at the Womanizer launch is that you really you really talked about how you found you, you became empowered through this, through casual sex. I had the opposite where... I felt like I had gone through a stage where I'd done too much of that and I felt empowered by saying no, which is interesting too. Yeah. On the other end. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong like way to do it, but I also do think that it is kind of a rite of passage. I feel like every woman needs to have, I call it like a hoe phase. <laughs> <laughs> My hashtag hoe phase. Um, it sounds like you're saying hoe face. Ho phase. Ho phase. It's ho phase, everybody. <laughs> P H A S E. Yes, yeah. Um, and um, because you do, you do learn about yourself, and and like your experience, you might have learned some things that you you didn't want. But I think that's still like a learning experience that you have, and it's exactly. very hard to have that experience without having any sexual encounters. You know, I think the problem with you know marrying your high school sweetheart and only being with the one person forever is you don't really get to necessarily explore that variety. Mm -hmm. So going back to that week of one night stands, what I loved about what you had written was the week started with an excitable guy who came a bit too early, and ended with an English man who you felt comfortable enough to ask for what you wanted. And I love that it was through this experience that you learnt to be more confident in asking. For those listening out there who might not want to do the exact same thing you did, how can they find that confidence in asking for what they want in the bedroom? Because it is a hard thing to do. Yeah, I mean, it. look, I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say it's going to feel easy. I think particularly for women, like I've talked about so far with all the conditioning we've had, 
it's going to feel really awkward. Um, and, you know, I, I was just writing about this today, actually, um, about so, for my Ask Nadia column, someone had said, you know, how do I give a really good blowjob? And um, I, I've spoken to women about this before. And I, the first thing I say is like, well, what does your partner like? Have you asked him? They say, oh, no, I'd, I'd be too embarrassed to do that. <laughs> and I say, hang on, hang on, let's, let's, just, let's just paint a picture here. So you've got his dick in your mouth but you're too shy to ask him what he wants. Like, let's just put this into context now. You're already, you've already done the most vulnerable thing that two people can do together. You are literally stripped naked with another person. That's the most vulnerable part over. Asking from there on should be easy. So I think just try to put it into context and try to remember that the reason you feel apprehensive about asking your partner what they want or asking for what you want is not because it's wrong, but because of the shame that you've been incorrectly sort of conditioned with. And we need to dismantle that. Mm. So practically, would you say this is a conversation you have while you're in the act or when you're having dinner? I don't know. <laughs> I, I always say that I, I think it's ideal not to bring things up in the heat of sex because, you know, you're not in the heat of the moment, it's different and, you know, someone might feel pressured or, or they might want to have a more detailed discussion or whatnot. I think the best time to bring things up is um, when both you, in a relationship setting at least, when both you and your partner are in a just a happy, calm space. You know, maybe that's just cuddling on the couch and you just bring it up then. Don't bring it up in the middle of a fight like, oh, you never do this thing in bed, you know, that, that that's not going to help you. Um, bring it up at a time when you're both really happy and calm and bring it up in a positive way, you know, because it, it can be very confronting. Mm. You don't want to be confronting your partner saying, oh, this thing you've been doing for the last five years, I've always hated it and I'm only just now <laughs> letting you know, you know. Just, How horrifying would that be for your partner? I, I think that it's there's that rule of what is it like to put two positives for every negative. So, you know, tell your partner a couple of the things that you really enjoy that they do and then you can sort of maybe say and when you do this thing I, I'm not as much of a fan of that so maybe we could focus on these other you know two things. You're talking about the shit sandwich there aren't you? Yes that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the sexy version. Yes yes. <laughs> so can you tell me how your confidence in the bedroom ended up helping other areas of your life? Well I think that's that is the reason why I'm so passionate about this and it's kind of become like a my career path is because I realized that sexual empowerment it seems like something that would just be about having better orgasms but actually it's about so much more and I think it's going back to what I was saying before that we are essentially at our most vulnerable when we're having sex we never anywhere else in your life are you more exposed than when you're literally naked in front of another person. And I think if you can ask for what you want in that situation, then all of those other situations that have seemed intimidating, like that boardroom meeting when you've got something to say, that pay rise you've been meaning to ask your boss for, those things seem so much less intimidating. And and when I was able to speak up for myself in the bedroom, speaking up for myself in the boardroom was easy. And I was able to speak up for myself in all areas of my life because I had done it at such a primal level. 
Because you had faced your fear at your most vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing else was that scary. Yeah, because I think what's really interesting is we, I, I know so many, and I'm sure you do too, like just smart, savvy, super switched on women that are like in these really powerful jobs. And they're still too like shy to ask their boyfriend for what they want in bed. And you're like, how can you be so powerful and successful in one component of your life? And then you're you're not asking for what you want at such a basic level. So I really think it begins in the bedroom. And and like I, I said, you know, in the beginning, I think real equality actually starts in the bedroom. You know, the, the orgasm gap is the biggest disparity that we have pretty much between the genders. Forget the pay gap. Like the orgasm gap is huge. And it really shows that conditioning that women have to put ourselves second. And I do want to say to any men that are listening that I'm not by any means suggesting that men are forcing us to do this. I, I've, I haven't had a partner that has made me feel that way. It's something that I've felt intrinsically myself from the way that I've been conditioned, from the fact that, you know, female pleasure never was acknowledged in sex ed. I didn't even really know it was a thing. Um, and I think so many women don't. And I, I speak to women who are like in their 40s and 50s and say, I've never had an orgasm. Never. Yeah. Yeah, and and they've they've also not spoken up about it with their partner. They've just assumed I must be broken. There must be something horribly wrong with me, because no one acknowledges things like, oh well, did you know that roughly seventy five percent of women need clitoral stimulation in order to reach orgasm? So it's very normal not to reach orgasm just from penetrative sex alone. So many women don't know that fact, and so just hearing that. You know, I've told that to women and it's just about brought tears to their eyes. They're like, I thought I was broken for all these years, but actually I just needed someone to touch my clit. <laughs> <laughs> that really points out how important it is to have these kinds of conversations. Hugely important. And I I think, you know, we don't have these conversations because, one, you know, they're obviously uncomfortable. It's not something we talk about a lot. And, two, because I don't think we, we – I didn't realise the importance of it until I started – going into this myself, but it does affect us in every aspect of our lives. And there, you know, there's that saying in your relationship that when you're really happy in your relationship, usually sex isn't a big deal. If you ask couples that are really happy about mm. how important sex is to them, they'll be like, yeah, it's kind of important. But if you're really unhappy, you know, it can take on a huge meaning. And so, you know, it, it is a really fundamental thing. Like it's not – it shouldn't be the biggest part of our life, but it also is just such a fundamental thing. Yeah, it shouldn't be a hidden part of our lives Correct. Either. Absolutely. I loved what you said earlier about how this isn't about – the orgasm gap isn't about being the men's fault. This is us – this is about us owning our pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would just say it's like our culture's – fault. It's the fact that, you know, like I even remember, I'm sure a lot of women listening have had this experience, um, being told not to say the word vagina when I was younger. You know, you, you refer to that as private parts. And I was like, oh, okay, that's like a really dirty word. That's a part of my own body that I was always told was basically a cuss word. Oh, we say vagina all the time in the women's health office. <laughs> well, we, we, do in, we do in my office now. I say it nearly every day. Um, but but yeah, you know, when I was younger, it was people, why are you saying that word? You know, that that's that's a dirty word. Um, and it specifically relates to the female body, whereas they're generally, I think culturally, we have a little bit more comfort with talking about penises and erections and those sorts of things. So I think it's very accepted that men are sexual. 
um, but it's just not ever really been acknowledged that women are sexual too. And the funny thing is, is like, if we got rid of this, I, I think slut shaming comes from fear because we're not used to seeing women who are sexual because women have been taught not to display that. And so people are fearful of that. And the way that I explain it to men who do slut shame is this could benefit you as well, not to slut shame women, because if women feel comfortable and free to express their sexuality, there's going to be a lot more openly sexual women around and you're going to have more sex, better sex and probably kinkier too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's benefits everybody. It's a win win for (laughs) everyone. So we, we just need to create a society where there's less shame. You've mentioned a lot that it's important to tell your partner what you like and what you enjoy. How do people discover that in the first place? Well, I think the best way to discover it is through masturbation because that's something that you're doing completely on your own, in your own privacy, in your own time. There's no pressure. You don't have to worry about how you look to anyone else. You can take as long as you need to look, um, sorry, as long as you need to take and really just discover yourself. And that that was how I discovered. And that's why, um, you know, I partnered up with the guys at Womanizer because you know, they're a, they have a brilliant sex toy product for women, which is a, a clitoral stimulator. Um, and it's through using stuff like that, that you can discover what you like and what you don't like. And then you, you've got that knowledge to take back to your partner. And I think all of us should own a vibrator of some sort. I think it's really beneficial to your sexual health and, and to actually learning what feels good so you can take that knowledge to your partner and not be one of this statistic of 30% of women that are having uncomfortable or painful sex. It's interesting that guys can talk about masturbation so freely and openly, but girls can't. And even when I gave you that example earlier of how when I read your blogs, it makes me feel like I'm back at the pub with my girlfriends just chatting about sex. We would never chat about masturbation, even though we talked freely about everything else. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I th- I think that that just highlights um, the shame that there still is around masturbation, female masturbation specifically, because like you say, you know, there is a lot of, you know, you watch any sort of m- popular movie or anything and there's there's jokes in there about men, you know, masturbating and stuff. But I think it's definitely still, there is still a lot of stigma around it. And unfortunately, that stigma is making women be very dissociated from their bodies. And so if you're dissociated from your body, you know, how how are your sexual experiences going to be? You write sex toy reviews for a living and come up against quite misogynistic feedback on your writing. And some examples I found online were, I feel sorry for you. Why can't you get a real man? Why do you think, why do you think that is? It's it's really interesting because my first instinct is to to just bite back and say, well, actually, you know, I've had a partner for the past two years and we have tons of great sex. Thank you very much. But I think I would be sort of um, – I would just be adding to the fire by doing that because I don't really think it should matter whether or not I have a man or a real man, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, I, I think that there are there is still a group of men who are threatened by sex toys only because they've not been educated. I still remember introducing my first sex toy into the bedroom. People assume that I'm this like real super kinky ass person that's got like whips and chains everywhere because I talk about sex, but I'm really actually quite vanilla. (laughs) Um, And the first time I introduced a sex toy into like partnered sex was actually um, 
a, a few years ago I was diagnosed with a mental illness and I went on antidepressant medication and the doctor didn't even mention, but I, I learned through experience and doing a lot of research that it was very common um, and has happened to me that I lost my ability to orgasm. Um, and unfortunately, that's that sort of medication, basically women have to choose between their sanity or their, their orgasm, yeah. which is a pretty difficult decision to make. Um, and I, I tried not to let it affect me, but it, it really affected me um, like on an emotional level after yeah. a while. And so I'd done some reading and um, found that the reason for it was that you you lose a lot of sensitivity. So I thought if I could have something more powerful into play, that could help. So I introduced like a very small clitoral stimulator into while I was having sex with my partner. And I was terrified to introduce it, even though I had been having such unsatisfying sex since I'd been on this medication. Um, he was being satisfied and I wasn't. And I was still terrified to say, and I remember saying to him, like, I just want you to know, like, this isn't because you're doing anything wrong. Like, you're an amazing lover. It's just I really need to have an orgasm and I basically need like a power tool down there. <laughs> and um, he uh, he was super understanding. Like, I'm I'm super lucky. Like, my, my partner's younger than me and he's very, like, new age and very sort of emotionally mature. So he was like, yeah, I'm cool with it. Whatever you need, you know. Yeah. Um, and but yeah, I I had that stigma, I guess, in my own head as well. That oh, if I introduce a toy, that means that the man isn't doing his job, and I think that's the way a lot of men see it as well. Yes, the, the toy is a replacement for them. Exactly. But in in actuality, you know, there's been a lot of research done into this, and couples that use sex toys together actually find that they have they feel not just having better sex, but they they actually feel more emotionally bonded because when you introduce a sex toy into the bedroom it kind of forces you to have a discussion. You kind of have to communicate, like, who's going to use this on who, where do you, you know, want to do it or whatever. You have to talk through a couple of things. That's true. And so that actually bonds you more as a couple. And it's adding to your pleasure. It's not there to replace anything. I think that's just such um, – yeah, it's just such a huge misunderstanding that we have about it. And, and yeah, I do get that a lot online. And so I just, I try not to explain, oh, I have a real man because that's besides the point. I try to explain, no, this is about, um, you know, adding to the mix. And, and for women also that are single, it, again, it's not to replace a real man. It's to have their own self-care and their own self-love time. Because I always say, masturbation should be part of your self-care routine. It's great for you. It's so great. Like even um, I wrote an article about um, masturbating at work, taking toilet breaks to go and masturbate. <laughs> Love Honey have this, um, it looks like a lipstick. Yeah. It dead set. looks like you could have it on the table now. You'd think it was a lipstick and it's actually a little clitoral vibrator. Yeah. And I wrote this article about like doing this thing. Where Did I you test it? Yeah, yeah. At work? Yeah. we've our, We're so like sexually open in my website. Like another girl had one of those vibrators that you wear around your necklace. It's like yeah. attached on and she she did a little challenge with that too. But um, no, and it actually like there's been tons <laughs> of studies. I have no shame. But, but no. <laughs> people are like, what is that buzzing in the store next to me? Is that Nadia? I keep hearing that. <laughs> Bring an electric toothbrush to us. <laughs> but, uh, but, but no, actually you, you actually have more mental clarity and are more productive after having an orgasm. There really? are so many, but you are actually, yeah, if you want to be more productive at work and more efficient at your job, either have sex before you come to work or 
masturbate before you come to is work. Is there a study that backs that up? Yes, 100%. Can you send is. it to me and we'll put it in the show links I, for I anyone out there who's curious because yes. I'm very curious about it. <laughs> and then when your boss is like, why did you come in late? Here's the study. I, I had to do this so I could be more productive. <laughs> it's great for the company. <laughs> Over the past few years, there have been quite great developments in femtech. So we talked about Womanizer and then there are great toys too that – also consider the fact that you're going to use them with a partner. What are your hopes for the future of this of of this chat about femtech and closing that orgasm gap? I think as and it's already starting to happen. I think as more people start to embrace using sex toys and realizing that it it is actually an extension rather than a replacement for something. Um, there are some great toys. You know, at that same launch that you and I are at, they were talking about. Um, the WeVibe Moxie, which is this incredible device. And I've recommended this to several of my um, subscribers on YouTube who've all written to me and said, this has been a game changer for my relationship. You can actually, it's a very discreet panty vibrator. The woman wears it, magnetically clips into her panties and her partner can control it from his smartphone from anywhere in the world. So if you have a partner that's had to go overseas for work, normally that would really um, compromise the sexual part of your relationship, but you can keep that alive. You know, what I can't think of uh, like a better reason for that sort of technology than to actually help two people stay passionate and connected in their relationship. So I think these sorts of technologies are great. Yeah, technology is awesome yeah. to think that you can do that and you couldn't do that a few years ago. The, and it's insane because they all, like so many of them now, have apps that connect to your phone and you can do everything. I mean, I think even with that one we were looking at, you can control the vibration, you can set it to the beats of your favourite song. <laughs> You can be like, here's the soundtrack that you need to be listening to while I play. <laughs> it's it's really it's really incredible. Like I I'm yeah I I really can't even imagine what they're going to do next. It's all great signs that we're heading in the right direction with this chat. Yeah, most definitely. Aside from sex toys, and now there's a whole new wave of feminist porn. Have you noticed anything else that? shows that we're closing this orgasm gap? I mean, I just think it's the fact that we are starting to become more open about acknowledging female sexuality. And I think probably the most powerful example of that would be um, the slut walk that Amber Rose started over in LA a few years ago. That has become a global movement now. Um, And I think, you know, those sorts of um, initiatives are really powerful in showing that women can be sexual and also be intelligent and, you know, these things don't exist in these little pigeonholes that we've previously sort of put them in. So I think the more that we acknowledge women being able to be sexual culturally, the more that women are going to start to feel comfortable to speak up for themselves in the bedroom. But it really does begin just with you and your partner alone in the bedroom. That's where it begins. Thank you so much for your time, Nadia. This has been a great conversation. Oh, you're so welcome. I I mean, I could talk about sex all day, every day. My own mum's like, can you stop talking about sex? For goodness sakes, don't you have anything else to talk about? Like, no, mum, no, we are going to talk about sex. (laughs) Thanks again. You're so welcome. 
Thanks for listening to Women's Health Uninterrupted. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you subscribe or leave a review. Want more from us? Of course you do. Pick up the latest copy of Women's Health magazine or visit womenshealth.com.au. If you feel you've been affected by any of the topics in this week's episode, help and support is available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au.